0: If you will, turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel. Let's begin in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to start in the 11th chapter and we are going to start in the 12th verse. So, Holy Week, we come to the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. The Annunciation of Jesus came angels. In the field of Bethlehem. Come and see the King has been born. And you will remember that, that the shepherds then went uh, up into the city. You will find a, a son wrapped in swaddling cloths and a manger. And, and so Christ's journey begins. And You remember John the Baptist uh, points to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, And then we see Jesus making his triumphal entry. John the Baptist is dead. He is beheaded. He is gone. But now the people are singing the Hosannas. The people are declaring the son of David and And you'll remember that the religious leaders, as Jesus comes into the city, that they are opposing him and telling Jesus to silence his disciples. And you'll remember that Jesus says to them that if they were to to be silent, then even the rocks themselves would cry out. Jesus comes into the hmm, temple, and you'll remember that he heals the blind and the lame, and the children are crying out, son of David, and, and Jesus then surveys the whole situation, the hour now being late, and, and he withdraws. He heads back out to Bethany, and that will be his pattern. He will come into the city and minister, and then he will withdraw again back to Bethany. And it is the final week of his earthly ministry. He is determined with every step he is seeking to accomplish the final touches of preparing the hearts of of the disciples. uh, Getting them ready for his departure. Seeking to fulfill all that the Father would have for him. Surrendered completely to his will knowing that the cross lays in front of him at the end of this week. And with great purpose in Jesus moves throughout uh, this week and it is so instructive in, in, in the way that Jesus uses his final time as time is the one commodity that none of us know exactly how much we have but it is that precious gift how you choose to spend it what you do with your moments who you choose to spend it with and so We follow Jesus as he marches through this final week of his life knowing that he will lay his life down. In verse 11 of this 11th chapter, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple and when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. And and then in verse 12, and now the next day, When they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now, remember that the fig tree is the symbol of the nation of Israel. Jesus had just made his official presentation of himself, and And now the religious leaders had rejected that official presentation and and so the consequences, the judgment upon the nation, and the nation was expected to be fruitful. And a fig tree, it's so interesting, if you're over in Israel in the springtime, you will see the fig trees that are over there. And right now, the leaves are coming forth. And and before the leaves ever come forth, the, the figs themselves start to form, the buds start to form, and they start to grow ahead of the leaves. So by the time you see a, a fig tree with its leaves, you are, expecting it to be fruitful. And so Jesus comes to the the tree that is, it is advertising that it is fruitful. And instead he finds that there is no fruit whatsoever. And this is symbolic now of the nation. He came to his own and his own received him not. He came to his own and, and the nation was expected to be fruitful. It was expected to take and to be ready for the Messiah. The prophets had, had forecast the coming of the Messiah, even unto the very day in the book of Daniel, because you did not know the day of your visitation. And and so rather than being fruitful and being God's witness here upon the earth, we see that, that the nation itself was opposing the will of God and the sending of his own son. And so, The cursing of the fig tree was just an emblem now of the physical reality that Jesus was experiencing with his rejection, but also the consequences of that would be the ultimate destruction now uh, of the nation. Titus would bring in his uh, armies in AD 70 and would absolutely destroy it. And so here, the disciples hear Jesus cursing that fig tree and they make note of it. Uh, and it says, and so they came to Jerusalem and, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves and the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching the backdrop to this final week is passover and you'll remember that one of the preparations for passover was that you were to go through your house and you were to get rid of all of the leaven you were to get rid of the leaven was typology for sin you were to cleanse your house. It was an external that was teaching an internal that the true preparation is the preparation of the heart. And, and so the cleansing of the house, the cleansing of the heart, the preparation for the Passover. And Jesus comes to his house, his father's house. And there is the leaven all over there are the money changers and the merchants and those that have set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. And and because of Herod's enlargement of the Temple Mount and the beautification, the porches and, and all that was there, people were using it as a thoroughfare, a, a shortcut from the upper city over to the, the east side. And and where there's a lot of traffic, then suddenly you have people selling bottles of water. And the next thing you have is the next merchant and the next merchant. And pretty soon there's booths and tables and traffic. And, and now it is turned into just a, a place of business, a place of commerce. And Jesus comes in and sees the pollution. Holiness to the Lord. My Father's house is a house of prayer. This is a sacred place. This is the one place on the face of the earth where God put his finger and invited the whole world to come and, and to worship him. The people, instead of seeing it as a place of connection to God, were seeking to make a profit. or seeking to bring commerce in. And so Jesus cleanses the temple just as the people were cleansing their houses. And once again, he reminds them my father's house it's a house of prayer it's a place of connection to the father whenever we come into the house of the lord it's a place of connection we open up the word we worship we pray but all of that is just seeking to open up our hearts and to connect our hearts to god And we have to make sure that it doesn't just become activities, just these, by rote, we come in and we sing some songs and we read some stories and off we go and and we've come to the house of the Lord, but did we connect in the house of the Lord? And that's what it's all about, your connection to God. God is inviting you. Every single day, listen, every single day into a deeper connection, a deeper connection, a deeper connection. And every day, listen, that we don't take God up on that invitation of a deeper connection was a wasted day. What, what was more important than drawing into a deeper relationship with God? And so we can let the tyranny of busyness and distraction, and our cell phones, and our TikToks, and our scrolling through the social media, and we—and the next thing you know, it's time to close our eyes and and go to sleep. And the question is, did we use our time well? Did we use our time well today? Because we can't get today back. So Jesus comes into the temple and. And once again, just points that it's a place of connection. It's a place of connection mm, to the Lord. And so mm, we see that Jesus uh, now mm, continues and the chief priests, there are seeking to destroy him. It says, for they feared him. They were afraid uh, of pure, perfect love. Why is someone afraid of love? Why would someone be afraid of pure perfect love because it threatened their agenda because they were seeking to hold on to their positions of power and Jesus was threatening that and so in protecting of what they wanted they couldn't see truth that was right in front of them and so they were afraid in verse 20 John's Gospel, chapter 12, tells us that at this point Christ is sought after by some of the Gentile Greeks. And there were certain Greeks who came to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew and In turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And so we see the inquiry now from the Greeks. And this is important. This is a a prefiguring of the Gentiles coming into the church as uh, as now we see the inquiry. It says in verse uh, 19, now back to Mark's gospel, chapter 11, and when evening had come, he went out of the city. And now in the morning... As they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And so they had remembered the day before the judgment on it. And now they come back the next morning and the tree is completely decimated completely destroyed. And and here again, notice that it it didn't take weeks or months. It was a sudden destruction. And that's the same way that Jerusalem is going to fall and that sudden, complete destruction by the Romans when Titus brings his uh, army in. And, and so Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. And therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And so and here again, we see Jesus now in his final days, instructing in prayer that we are not to bring our prayers to, to God in a state of, of listlessness, but that we are to bring our prayers by faith, that we are to be connected to God by faith, and that we are to trust that God has our best interests. Know that God listens to your prayers. He hears your prayers. And so we're not just throwing prayers uh, up, but we have a loving Father who hears and cares for you. And know this, he will give you the very best at all times. And sometimes, the answer of no to a prayer is the very best thing for you. We don't always get what we want, but God always gives us the very best of what we need in any situation, in any circumstance, and always in his perfect in timing. And so uh, instruction in prayer and, and how we are to, to pray, And then he he, he adds in verse 25, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And we see the importance of keeping a clean slate with our brothers and our sisters, with those that are around us, recognizing this. That we have been forgiven for all of our sins. And so if we have been forgiven all of our sins, how can we withhold forgiveness from somebody else for for any of their sins against us? And so here we see that Jesus is teaching us the importance of forgiveness. Forgiveness sets you free. Forgiveness sets me free. When I forgive somebody and I, and I let it go, I have kept bitterness from entering into my heart. And when bitterness enters into my heart, whatever place in your heart that bitterness is occupying, it prevents that part of your heart from loving. And so the more of your heart that becomes bitter, the less capacity you have to love everybody else that is around you. And God wants you 100% free to love everybody at all times. Amen. And so the commandment, he he commands us and tells us, you absolutely have to forgive. A good question in our heart, is there anybody, anybody, that's alive or has passed away that you have not forgiven? That you have not forgiven? And what is forgiveness? Forgiveness says that I release the right to punish you for that offense. It's gone. I turn it over to God. God knows what happened. God, you see it. It's in your hands, but I'm not going to punish you at all. I've given it to God. And that's what sets us free. And so here in this last week, Jesus is focusing on making sure that we're free. Making sure that that there's no hindrances that are in our lives. And and so the importance of forgiveness. In verse 27. And then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, once again, the backdrop to this is the Passover and You remember we talked about on the day of his triumphal entry, that's four days before the Passover, that that was the date of selection of the Passover lamb, that you would take your Passover lamb, and now you would bring it into the house. It would now be separated, and this was going to be the lamb that you were going to celebrate your Passover with. So Jesus was identified on the day of selection as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, during these four days, you were to take the lamb and you were to bring it to the priest to have it inspected. A lamb had to be one year old and it couldn't have a spot or a blemish on it. A spot is a birth defect, so no birth defects and then a blemish is an injury, a scar, a a wounding, tearing of an ear, or breaking of a leg. It couldn't be injured and it couldn't have a birth defect and so you were to bring it to the priest and to have it examined. So Jesus as the Lamb of God is now being inspected by the religious uh, leaders. And so uh, we will see the various different inspections as they now come before him. And again, the first question that is going to be given to him regards his authority and You'll remember that Jesus answers that by telling them, I'll, I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. If you tell me the authority behind John the Baptist, and you'll remember they refuse to answer that question. And, and then the next to uh, come to him, you'll remember that the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him, and they try and draw him into politics. And I don't know if you've noticed, but politics can be divisive. <laughs> And so they they seek to put in Jesus onto the uh, the horns of the dilemma. Jesus, are you a Republican or a Democrat? And you know, and, and so and and seeking no matter what he answers to that, he, he is going to to be defined by his answer, and then uh, he is going to be rejected by those that don't share uh, that opinion. And so they believe that they've got great opportunity to diminish Jesus's popularity. But once again, Jesus steps outside of it. He's not here to promote any political party. There are those that would seek to hijack the church and use the church for their own political gain. But the church is not a political party. The church is the kingdom of God, and so we see that it stands outside of uh, of politics. Religious zealots sought now to be able to take Messiah and use the Messiah and the movement to be able to overthrow Rome. They wanted their political agenda to be accomplished, and, and they'll use anything to accomplish their political agenda. Be careful when anybody wants to use the church for a political agenda. And here we see that Jesus sidesteps it completely. He says, you know, the political agenda, politics in general, what is the right form of government? Did you notice that that the Bible never talks about what the right form of government, whether it should be socialism or democracy or whether it should be, you know, any of the different forms, kings or parliaments or anything else? Why? Because that's man ruling over man. Right? He validated that governments are, have authority to rule over. But Jesus is setting up the kingdom of God. And there's only one king that can rule over men. Amen? And so he's not interested in reforming the governments. He's interested in setting up the kingdom of God. And so we see that he bypasses that. It says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give honor where honor is due. Worship God. And so we see here that Jesus wasn't validating the Romans or undermining the Romans. He just built the kingdom of God. How's the kingdom of God doing in your heart and in your life? That's that's what is important in your life. And so the Sadducees, they come and they inspect him also, all part of the inspection of the lamb. And they ask the question about the, the resurrection from the dead and and once again, you know Jesus tells them that you know not the, the scriptures nor the power of God, He corrects their misunderstanding on the um, resurrection and uh, and he moves uh, on from there and and you'll remember that then there was the question what's the first commandment of all once again, it was a an entrapment of Jesus to be pulled into the uh, the incredible debates that the that the rabbis used to love to have. We just got back from Israel. And our tour guide was, was joking with this. He says, when you have two rabbis, you have five opinions. <laughs> you know? I mean, they, they, they love to argue their opinions. And, uh, and so all of the laws and the different laws and, uh, and the keepings of the law and the way that they had taken and, and made their traditions and then they would argue their traditions and which of the traditions were more important. So they were expert at this. And so they, they had their champion debater. And now, Jesus, which one of these is the, uh, is the most important? Seeking now to twist Jesus into a pretzel with, with which they were so practiced at doing. And, and Jesus, once again, he just uh, reduces it back to the simplicity of the focus of our life. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and then love others as you love yourself. And here is the basis, here is the thrust, here is the heartbeat of our life. We are to learn how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we're to learn how to truly love others. Jesus would say that you have to pick up your cross, deny your flesh, and follow after me the battle is with the flesh the flesh wants you to love it wants you to focus all of your effort and energy on on it and when you're loving yourself there's no room to love anybody else and this is why you have to die to yourself and crucify your flesh to be able to allow love to get out of your heart out of your life into other people's lives and jesus was the perfect example Perfectly connected to the Father. So a perfect inflow of love into his life and then perfect outflow. Jesus loved others at all times. And we will see it even when he's on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's praying for and interceding for those that are crucifying him. And so Jesus loved at all times. Jesus would say, love your enemies. And Jesus demonstrated that by praying for those that were pounding the spikes into his very hands and into his feet, interceding, loving them, even to the very end. And so the model has been set for us. God didn't just tell us how to live it. Jesus came down to demonstrate exactly how to live it, to walk it out so that we would have that example before us. And It says that after that, no one dared question. Jumping to chapter 12, verse 41, it says that then Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and drew in two mites, which made of quadrants. And so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow is put in more than all those who have given to the treasury for they all put in out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood and what does jesus here show he he comments on sacrificial giving on sacrificial giving he highlights this woman that puts in just a little tiny bit but it was all that she had And that represented a great sacrifice. There were rich people that put in a lot, but it was a little compared to how much that they had. She put in a little, but it was a lot compared to how much she had. And and Jesus is pointing this out, I believe, to reinforce the sacrificial giving that Jesus is about to undergo. No greater love is a man than this, and he would lay down his life for a friend she put in two mites jesus put his whole life on the cross and for us and jesus paid it all and and so he points to sacrificial giving remember that sacrifice is the language of love sacrifice is the language of love the greater the sacrifice the greater the love behind uh, that gift uh, and so, and here Jesus points to a, a great sacrifice. Jesus weeps over in Jerusalem. He utters the eight woes and then weeps, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen. Gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus departs now from the temple. It's the last time that he will visit the temple. He crosses now from the Temple Mount, the Kidron Valley, to the Mount of Olives. And he heads over to the Mount of Olives and you'll remember that it was there that the disciples, as they were walking by, they were just so impressed with the temple, the, the glory of the temple and and Jesus. And then, and tells them that not one stone is going to remain upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they sit down over there on the Mount of Olives. And every day they would climb the Mount of Olives and head out over to Bethany due east. And and so there was a, a garden over in the Mount of Olives. Garden of Gethsemane is a garden there in the Mount of Olives. And whether or not they're in the garden of Gethsemane or they're just resting underneath an olive tree, but it's there that Jesus gives the, the very famous Olivet Discourse when he talks about the, the end times, the second coming, the signs of those. And so Jesus uh, now talks about the future events and prophetically talks about the times that we are living in right now and how we are living in the very end times we have seen the fulfillment of the ezekiel dry bones prophecy the regathering together of the nation of israel back uh, into its land the revitalization of the hebrew language from a dead language that was only in the scriptures to now it is the language that is spoken in the nation of israel the alignment of the nations the moral decay of the world the pestilences the earthquakes the signs all of it is in play is in movement right now israel and jerusalem is the prophetic time clock and and up until they were regathered, that time clock was paused. But with the regathering, it's the nation that sees these things will not pass away until the Lord returns. And so we are coming into the very end of that time period. And, and so we are living in extremely exciting times. And just as when Jesus came the first time, they were expected to know it. They were expecting to understand the scriptures and the prophecies that that were given, that we might have that hope and that expectancy. And and so we are living in those very times uh, right now. Jesus went on after all of that discourse to give the parable of the ten virgins, the talents, the the sheep and the goats. And and in the 14th chapter here of Mark's gospel, verse 1, and and after two days, it was the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. I love verse 3, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. So Simon is a leper that Jesus healed. The healing of a leper. Never in the history of the nation had any leper ever been healed that was Jewish. Jewish. You will remember that there was the Syrian commander, Naaman, that was healed of leprosy. And, uh, and he was to dip himself in the in Jordan River. But no Jew had ever been cleansed of leprosy. And, and yet, in the Old Testament, there was a whole procedure of after a leper is cleansed, that this is the ritual to undergo to restore him back into fellowship. It had never been used to... Until Jesus heals the lepers. You remember there were 10 lepers that were healed. Only one came back and gave thanks. But here is Simon the leper, someone who lost his life completely to leprosy. Had to leave, depart, leave his family, leave his wife, leave his job, leave his friends, and go join a leper colony and just wait to die. And Jesus gave him back his entire life restored him. And now Simon the leper was hosting a meal in Jesus's honor in his own house to thank him. How do you thank someone that gives you back your entire life? How do you thank somebody for that? What debt of gratitude is there in this heart? And so the very the very feast itself was a feast of, of thanksgiving and gratefulness. And, and Simon the leper is there, but then how about Lazarus, you know? Imagine you're a leper and you're healed and you're trumped by a guy that was dead three days and comes back to life again, you know? You're upstaged at the party that you're giving now by... And so here they are. I, I, I mean, just can't even imagine the emotion that was there, the thanksgiving, the gratitude. And and a woman comes in. She had a very costly alabaster flask. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Many believed that that was her dowry. 300 denarii is 300 days wages, a, a year's salary. So pick whatever salary a year's salary is, 30,000, 40,000. This is like Chanel number five in a big China bottle this big that now is broken, and, and the whole bottle, the whole bottle poured on him at once. And they're like, "Ah. Do you know how much that was worth? Do you know how much money you just wasted? Do you know what we could have done with that? And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. And she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial." Remember when the women come to the tomb afterwards, what their big concern was? Was that he hadn't been anointed properly. (laughs) That he had been rushed into the grave, quickly washed, quickly wrapped, and placed in. And so he didn't have a a proper anointing. But here, what does Jesus say? She anointed my body ahead of time. She anointed my body beforehand. She's done what she could. She came beforehand to anoint my body for burial. The disciples had no understanding of what Jesus meant when he was saying these words. They had no idea that the crucifixion was around the corner and that they were going to be stunned at his death. But here Jesus is speaking clearly, but they're words that are not being comprehended while they're being heard clearly. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be told as a memorial to her. And so, here again, what do we see? Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. The woman with the two mites gives all that she has. Here, the woman that anoints them with this extravagant gift, we see the sacrificial love. For And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And He sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there. Make ready for us. And so his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Go into the city. Now, huh, once again, the city is just bustling with all of the pilgrims that are there for the Passover. And, and Jesus tells them, go into the city and you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Just follow him. And then whatever house he goes into, and say to the master, the, the master has need of your upper room and, and he will have it prepared for you. A man carrying a pitcher of water would be identifiable because women were the ones that carried the pitchers of water. And so a man carrying a pitcher of water, this would stand out mm-hmm. in a crowd. So go in, you'll find a man carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. And, and they went and found it just exactly as they had said. Many believe that Jesus didn't want to reveal the location of the Passover, knowing that Judas was seeking an opportunity to betray him, that if Judas knew where the Passover meal was going to be celebrated, that it is very probable that the arrest would have taken place and interrupted the Passover meal. And so Jesus keeps the the address and the location by telling the disciples just go into the city, you'll follow a man that has a pitcher, and whatever house he goes to, you, you go and prepare the Passover there and, and that is quite impossible. I want you to jump to John's gospel now, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end and supper being ended the devil already having it put into the heart of Judas Iscariot Simon's son to betray him and Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And, And then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing My feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. You can imagine the moment. The disciples came in arguing amongst themselves who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. It was always the the job of the slave and the slave of the lowest stature in the house to wash the feet of the guests when they came in. In Israel, you wore sandals. It's hot and it's dusty and, and so you're, clothes would be clean, but your feet would be dusty from having walked, and so when you were going to come in and feast, you would slip off your sandals at the door, and there would be the basin, and the servant would just rinse your feet and, and wipe them. So the basin was there, and the towel was there, and the disciples came in, but there weren't any servants around, and they looked at the basin, and they looked at each other, and they're like, guess we're eating with dirty feet. <laughs> Because I'm not washing your feet. Because <laughs> it would be an admission that I'm in a lower pecking order than you. They'd just been arguing. Who's going to have the biggest territory? Who's, who's going to be the most important when Jesus sets up his kingdom? And that pecking order, that pecking order. The pecking order of the world. It's true in the barnyard grew up with chickens and roosters and goats and there was a pecking order in that in that pen there's a pecking order on the playground it's a pecking order girls have in their relationships with each other status connected to who your friends and, and with the pecking order of Facebook posts and likes and who has more friends and more followers and the competition of who's got more Who's more important who's more popular the pecking order the pecking order the pecking order the pecking order the disciples had their in pecking order they were fighting over their pecking order and so jesus girds himself disrobes and girds himself and he kneels down and he starts washing their feet and he comes to peter and Lord, what are you doing? You you cannot wash my feet. You can't wash my feet. You absolutely cannot wash my feet. And Jesus says to him, I have to. You see, because the typology here was that even though we're saved... When we walk around in the world we're still going to get sin on our feet we're still going to get the dust of the day we're still going to have our moments of failure and and so we're going to need to constantly keep having our feet rinsed of our daily failures and and peter says no you can't wash me Jesus says, if I don't wash, you you have no part of me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Give me a shower then. You know, I want want the whole thing. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. In other words, once you're saved, you don't need to keep getting saved and keep getting saved and keep getting saved. You're already saved. You're washed. But you still need your feet rinsed off. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. And therefore he said, you are not all clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you, what? If you do them. Are you serving others or are you seeking to be served by others. Are you fighting to be loved the way that you want to be loved? Or are you seeking to love others? Blessed are you if you do them. And so, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, and Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. And most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And so Jesus will identify Judas and Christ will announce uh, his departure Verse 31, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, Where I am going, you cannot come. And so now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus is going to continue to teach the disciples and this meal is the meal that he really looked forward to and and then he's going to institute the Lord's Supper and we're going to go to the Lord's table right now. And I want to invite the ushers to come and to pass out the elements uh, now. I want to invite the worship team to come back up onto the platform. And so we, we come to the, to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, to communion that Jesus instituted. And we see how loving Jesus is towards his disciples. He has longed for this meal. He has longed to be able to take now the common elements of the meal. He's going to take the cup, he's going to take bread something that was common to their meals but now he is going to pour new meaning into those very elements themselves and he is going to use these elements now as a as a way of remembrance as a way of commemorating and what is it that jesus is commemorating when we come to the communion table when we Come to this meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And we see the the lessons that, that he has taught to them. The lessons that we're to examine our own lives with. He taught them humility, the lesson of humility. And how it is that God exalts the humble, but that he will humble the proud. And whenever we take communion, we want to examine our own hearts. How how are we doing in that area of, of recognizing the that everything that we have that's good in our life has come from God. That every single good thing, I just want you to stop for one second and let that penetrate your heart. Think of every good thing that you have in your life. Every single good blessing that you enjoy in your life and know that it's all traced back to the fountain of God's blessings in your life and so what do we have that God hasn't given to us and then he's entrusted it as a stewardship to us in our life and in that place of humility that place of recognition that all honor all glory belongs to God and not to take any of God's glory and to try and wear any of God's glory on your own feeble frame. To try and clothe yourself with what belongs to God is is an insult to God. The proud heart wants recognition from others. It wants praise from others. It wants to be noticed, exalted, looked up to. Respected, It was the very sin of the Pharisees, the pride. They wanted the best places at the feast. They wanted the recognition. They, they coveted it. They fought with each other for it and then presented themselves as godly men who were just carnal. Jesus described it another way. He says, you are nothing more than whitewashed sepulchers. You paint the outside, but your hearts inside are so desperately wicked. The humility of Jesus walking that path of humility. He kneels down. He washes their feet. Imagine that. Jesus washing their feet, their toes, the heels, the bottoms of their feet. With his hands that will be nail scarred. By the end of that weekend. So communion is a reminder of the humility of Jesus. Service. Service to one another. Serving others, serving others, serving others, serving others, serving others. We're so busy with self. We're so busy with what we're trying to get done with our to-do lists, with our agendas, with what we're trying to accomplish. But... Are we able to even see others? Open the eyes in my heart, Lord, that I might see like you see. So communion is a time to just stop and to reflect upon the example that Jesus set. and When he invited us to follow him, this is what he's inviting us into. The path up is down, service of others, and then he, taught us to love a new commandment they give love it's what your life is supposed to be all about forget all the noise forget all the chatter forget the world forget possessions and love how are you doing how's your love for God how's your love for others doing and this is what Communion is all about connection to God and then connection to others and being connected and being channels and vessels of of love. The woman breaks the alabaster and pours out love, and she's criticized. But Jesus exalts her. Extravagant love. Let's take a moment to reflect. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And assuredly I say to you that I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's partake father god how can we begin to thank you for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and jesus your willingness to come to live the perfect life and to go to that and cross to die for our sins holy spirit thank you for your willingness to come and dwell and in this world, in our hearts, to do that work of molding us and shaping us into the image and likeness of Christ. So God, we give thanks to You. We magnify You. We glorify You. We praise You. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen and amen.